Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning there, just uh, a brief note that I like to emphasize every so often. If you are new with us, we want to just celebrate that you're here. And uh, in so doing, I also want to just take a moment and share uh, one of the aspects of who we are that's really uh, probably... The, one of the most important aspects of who we are, if we're going to continue to honor the Lord, and that's that our desire is that everything that we do would line up with what God has said we should be and should do, which is why uh, every week the encouragement is for you to take your Bible out and open it, because regardless of who's standing here, uh, what needs to be elevated is the Word of God. And so... Uh, That's just something I I like to just pause and remind every one of us of as we're listening uh, that we would be doing so with a yearning to uh, hear what uh, God has to say about who we're called to be as the church. Um, That we wouldn't become a people who just yearn to have our ears tickled, if you will, as scripture warns about, but that we would faithfully walk in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. So 1 Peter chapter 4, we've been in 1 Peter for some time now, and uh, just a few more weeks, honestly. So starting in December, uh, Lord willing, we'll be starting our Christmas series uh, I'm excited about. Um, and we'll be in Luke chapter 1 and 2 for most of December, and look forward to that time with you all as well. And uh, as we come to near the end of 1 Peter... You're going to see a lot of ties back to what he's already written to the churches that uh, are in modern day, what we would see as modern day Turkey. And I want you to, uh, as we go through this, to try and see some of those. I'm going to highlight some of that. But you're going to see him start to reiterate things that he's already said. And anytime that happens, and we hear scripture repeated, uh, it should really hone us in and go, okay, wait a minute, this is important. Uh, This was important for the church then, and it's important for us as the church now to understand what this looks like practically as God's people. And so, uh, I encourage you, I know at the beginning of our series, I encourage you to read all the way through 1 Peter uh, and and set a goal to do that once a week, uh, five chapters. And I would encourage you, even if you started that and, and have stopped for a while, in these last couple of weeks... Uh, do that again, just to re-solidify what God's Word says and what Peter wrote to these churches. Um, 
If you get nothing else out of today, I want you to grab hold of this phrase, which we've already been singing, but is one of the most important aspects of being the church God has called us to be that we could just grab hold of. And it is, it is simply this. Glory belongs to God alone. Glory belongs to God alone. Now, when we read a statement like this, if we have had any measure of time growing up in the church or spent time in church, or even what I have found, even growing up in what we would identify as rural America, we see a statement like this and we resound, yeah, glory to God. The challenge becomes, is that the statement our life declares? Or is it just the statement we resound with and hope is true? And that's not just outside of the church, but maybe even more frighteningly, we need to stop and pause and consider uh, that inside the church to say, uh, who do we aim to elevate Who do we aim to glorify every time we gather? We can say one thing, but in practice, in who we are, in how we engage with one another, in how we respond to God's word, is it true? Now, I want to begin by just reading this section of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11, and then we're going to break that apart, and you're going to see four specific commands or exhortations that Peter gives to the churches. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies... In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we pause and consider how this thought concludes with The goal being that God may be glorified in verse 11. And the statement to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the questions we ought ask is, what do we mean when we say glory? That glory belongs to Him. And this is the range of everything encompassed in this one word when we say glory belongs to God alone. And I want you to pause and just think about this. Brightness, power, splendor, radiance, greatness, fame, recognition, renown, honor, prestige, and majesty. Belongs to God 
alone. And when we stop and think about that, we may find that it's easier for us to answer what are the things in our own life and in the life of the church that we are prone to give any of these things to. Where in our lives are we prone to identify true greatness or fame or recognition? Where are we most prone to honor or elevate? And how do we make sure that we aren't creating idols? In the midst of our attempts to worship. Glory belongs to God alone. Now he starts this section of scripture in verse 7. By giving the motivation for all of these exhortations. If you notice that. In verse 7 he says the end of all things is at hand. Now I always find it somewhat intriguing. That we can read this in 1 Peter. And then we can come full circle and step into today. And I hear the same thing today. Where week in and week out, I hear people who come and say, the end of all things is at hand. It's, it's close. It's getting worse. It's progressing. And I go, yes. Peter would have said the same thing to his brothers and sisters in the churches of Asia at this time. The better question is in light of the end approaching, what do we do? Who should we be? And he goes on to answer those questions. So there's four exhortations here. We see that, therefore, since the end of all things is at hand, therefore, number one, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, when we stop and we think about this, another way of understanding this would be be of sound judgment and watchful mind. To be self-controlled is to have sound judgment. Uh, It doesn't take us long when we hear the word self-control to immediately think of someone in our scope of influence who lacks this self-control. And in fact, for some of you, maybe it's a person in close proximity to you. It's not hard to identify these things. But I want you to, instead of just thinking about this on a personal level, think about this on a church level. Where is it that we, as a one people, united together in Christ, are called to be of sound judgment? And maybe a better question is, how do we as a people become a people of sound judgment? This goes back to what I said at the beginning. We believe that wisdom and sound judgment has been given to us in Scripture. So if we are going to be a people of sound judgment, we must practice that which we identify as sound judgment, which comes from God Himself. Maybe the piece that's harder for us to understand is to be sober minded. Now, this is not the first time Peter has talked about this. If you flip back just a few pages to chapter one, verse 13, 
you see that he says this again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to be someone who is prepared for action and sober-minded or that watchful, having a watchful mind, he set the tone in chapter 1 to say, if I'm going to do that, then I need to set my hope fully. Everyone say fully. Not, not partially. Not a piece of my life. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, someone reads that and goes, now wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. And yet this is speaking of grace that is yet to come. Yes and yes. You see, the grace we're given in Christ, grace unmerited favor given to us through Jesus, is something we can confidently possess today with an eager hope and anticipation of what how that grace is going to be fulfilled fully when Jesus returns. It should be the believer who is confidently expectant and eagerly waiting for Jesus, as we sang earlier this morning. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. That that should be not just a longing to be freed from earthly bondage, but a fulfillment, a finality of the grace that God has given us a preview of through Jesus. We don't often think about that. Flip back over towards... Uh, the other end, and we saw in verse chapter 4 here, but also in chapter 5, verse 8. And in this context, he's actually writing to the elders of the church, which we're going to get to here in a couple of weeks. And he gives them the exhortation to be sober-minded. Verse 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Some of us are familiar with that text, but we tend to focus more on the fact that the enemy prowls around than we do the exhortation to be watchful, to be sober-minded. And so there is an expectation here that we're not just going to live our lives self-controlled, but we're going to be intentionally watchful as we live out a faith we claim as our own, Anticipating the hope that is yet to come in Christ. Our self-controlled and sober mind should be rooted in the living hope that we have through Christ. It is nearly impossible for you and I to live a self-controlled, sober-minded life according to Scripture. If we are apart from Jesus. Because apart from Christ, we have no hope. This is it. And so apart from Christ, this season of the world should stir an anxiety and an unrest in the hearts of an unbeliever. Because if this is all we have, my goodness, it's not looking good. And yet, for the believer, it should reorient us back to what our focus should be the whole time. It hasn't changed. It's the beautiful part of following Jesus is regardless of what happens out here, Christ is the same and his victory is sure. Therefore, what should our confidence be? Sure, if our hope is in Christ. 
But if our aim, here's where this becomes challenging on a practical, personal level. If our aim is self-glory, if our aim is simply self-preservation, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, we will always struggle to be sober-minded. Because we'll be watching for the wrong thing. The world around us will always pose a threat to anything of earthly glory. But the things of this world can do nothing to impact eternal treasure. Sound judgment and sober-mindedness is rooted in biblical humility. And what is biblical humility? It sets aside self for the glory of God. Biblical Humility sets aside self for the glory of God. And we see even in Matthew chapter 23, the exhortation of scripture, whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And how different is that from how the world communicates this? The world would say, hey, if you want to be someone of good rapport and Find self-satisfaction. You work at it. You work at it and work at it and work at it. And yet scripture says you want to be exalted in a way that actually matters. Humble yourself. Who's the example we have for this? It's Christ. Who though, according to Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he what? He humbled himself. Taking the form of a servant so though the end is near the exhortation is be self-controlled and sober-minded one might ask why and the the reason peter gives here is really interesting he says for the sake of your prayers now one might ask what does this have anything to do with prayer and we need step back and Recognize that our state of mind drastically affects our prayer life. What we pray for and how we pray is rooted in where our hope is found. If you want a fast track to figure out what you desire to be glorified in your life, evaluate how we pray. Evaluate what we pray for. And we will quickly find the things that we elevate over God. Now, I always preface these statements by saying it's not wrong for us to petition God. And in fact, scripture teaches it where it tells us to even be persistent in prayer. The question is, is my heart yearning for God or is it yearning for whatever else this is? For the person who's struggling with physical ailment, is my heart yearning for God to be glorified even in my physical ailment? Or is my heart for my physical well-being? The person who's suffering in the midst of relational crisis, is my heart for God to be glorified in my life even in the midst of the mess? Or is my heart for my relationship to be restored? You see, we can apply this to any measure. In parenting, this is one that's very close to me and my wife right now. Is my desire for God to be glorified in the lives of my children? Or is my desire for me to be glorified in how my children behave? There's a big difference, isn't there? 
And how we pray and what we do and how we move forward communicates clearly who we desire to get the glory. And yet, glory belongs to who? To God alone. Glory belongs to God alone. Now, the second exhortation that we see here in verse 8. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's interesting because this is not the first time in Scripture that these words have really been written in this way. We see this in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Uh, so there is a emphasis here where Peter stops and he goes, uh, he accentuates this, which is really interesting. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. There's an emphasis here that goes beyond what some of the others. And this love that's being described here is an agape, unconditional love. The very same love that's been shown to us in Christ. Above all, love one another earnestly. And and that word earnestly means eagerly or persevering or not growing weary of doing so. Now, I will also note here that contextually, he's he's talking to who? Who's Who's he writing to? The church. Everyone say the church. He's writing to people who say we follow Jesus. And so the exhortation to, above all, keep loving one another, family, it starts here. And I'll say it over and over again. If we fail to love one another well, we will be absolutely ineffective to love anyone outside of the family of God. If we fail to care for one another well, then we would be, we would be completely off to try and care for people well outside of the family of God. It's, it's the same reason. Most people don't make this tie. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications for being a leader in the church is to manage your own household well. And the, the, the reason for that is it says, how can you expect to be faithful to lead the church if you, if you can't even lead your home? The same principle applies amongst us as a family unit in Christ as it relates to the world. If we want to be effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ... It starts by us caring for one another. So if we fight and we bicker and we have disputes and we, we are selfish and focus on the glory of ourselves instead of the glory of God, we should not expect to reach more people with the hope of Christ because we aren't living it out ourselves. So there's a challenge here for us to evaluate and go, how do I purposely and intentionally love my brothers and sisters in Jesus? It even goes to John 13, where Jesus told his own disciples. A new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. There's the example. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, we could spend a long time on this and talk about what does it look like to actually Love one another well, because the way the world defines, and unfortunately the way many churches define loving one another, is not actually loving. It's it's more like we're just going to look the other way. 
We're, we're not going to practice accountability. We're not going to do... And that's not... If we go back to the first exhortation, that's not being sober-minded. That's not being of sound judgment. Because that's not what Scripture tells us to do. It's not comfortable a lot of the time. And yet, that is what the call of God's Word is. And it, it really brings us to that place of going, how is it that Peter writes that... The reason you should keep on doing this earnestly is because love covers a multitude of sins. How how is that possible? I, I thought only the blood of Jesus covered our sin. Yes, in an eternal way. But remember that he's talking here about the horizontal relationships the church is to have with one another. He's talking about how we engage with one another and why. And so when we step back and we ask the question, well, what is this that love covers a multitude of sin? How does our love for one another cover over sin? We know it doesn't mean condone sin because Jesus specifically teaches his followers to call sin out. We know it doesn't mean condemn because there's only one judge and lawgiver and that's God himself. And the reminder in Romans 8 that There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does it look like in relationship with one another to see that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, love acknowledges sin for what it is, but does not see people merely through the lens of that sin. It covers over it. And so if think about this for a moment, a brother or sister who's struggling, struggling, with sin. And the first thing we do is to come around, come alongside, and physically look, look at an example of covering that person over and say, we're going to love you and remind you how to, that, that we're going to follow Jesus together. We're going to envelop you with what is true, that you might be freed from this bondage. Because freedom is found in Jesus. It's found in Christ. Now, This gives us a completely different picture when we think about even practical church discipline. Because the person who chooses to stay in their sin, when the church comes around and says, we want to cover this and, and encourage you and help you find freedom, they break out of that covering and go, no, I don't want that freedom. And that's when the church has a responsibility to say, whoa, 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 okay, hold on. If, if you don't want freedom from that, then are you, are you with us? Are, are you part of this family? Are you, are, you, are you in Christ? And those are the responsibilities we have in love to go, we, we need not treat someone like a follower of Christ if they are not a follower of Christ. In fact, how much more unloving could we get than to... Convince someone that they're okay if they're not okay. To, to encourage someone that they're fine if they don't understand the gospel. We have a responsibility to love in a way that covers over sin in the same way that Jesus, while we were still in our sin, gave his life for us. The example is found in the gospel. Who does that kind of love glorify? Not ourselves. It glorifies God alone. Because he's the example of that. 
The love, this type of love is to be rooted in the very gospel that we proclaim. Salvation in Christ alone. Whose death, burial, and resurrection are the only means by which we are saved. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Rather, God chose to love us and demonstrates that love to us through Christ. In the same way, we are to love one another, not because it looks good or makes us feel good, but because we recognize what God in Christ has done for us. When we love one another earnestly, we lower self and declare that glory belongs to God alone. Number three, third exhortation here. Show hospitality to one another. And I love the caveat here. And I really wish I could sit down with Peter and go, what brought about this really specific instruction? What circumstance was, was happening? Because it's show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I go, man, something happened. Something happened and Peter went, okay. You know the instruction is you need to be hospitable, but I'm going to add this to it. Be hospitable and don't complain about it. Don't grumble about it. Our, and here's what we can realize in that. Our attitude as the church can either emphasize our care for others or eliminate it. Our attitude can either emphasize that we care about people Or it can eliminate that care altogether. Some of you may have experienced this. Uh, You you can tell the difference uh, when, when you get good, we'll say, customer service, right? And sometimes you don't even have to see the person. You can tell over the phone. Someone calls you or you call someone and you need help with something. And man, they are just short. And they help you, but you can tell they really didn't want to help you. Where in the church are we prone to do the same thing? And you, you want an even further challenge where Jesus goes, if someone forces you to go a mile with them, go two. If someone asks for the coat off your back, give them your whole robe. The emphasis is, be, be a people who are outrageously generous and be joyful about it. It's, it's the reason that Paul exhorted the church in Corinth. Don't, don't give something out of compulsion, but willingly as God leads you to do. That's not true of just monetary things. That, that should be true of <clears throat> everything that God has entrusted into our care. My home. My resources. My availability, my time. All of these aspects where I go, am I, number one, are we a a people who are hospitable? And two, do we have a good attitude about it? Um, In 3 John, actually there's this exhortation or or this recognition of the people there that's really interesting. And 3 John is one chapter. So you just see verses. And he's... He writes and he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So these weren't people who they were used to gathering with, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name 
accepting nothing from the Gentiles, those would be the unsaved people. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we, get this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And what I love about this is that the reason to be hospitable here to brothers and sisters in Christ is because in so doing, you become a partner in the work they're doing. That God uses hospitality in a way to further the gospel. And he's speaking here about individuals who weren't from their normal gathering, who came to that place to carry forth the name of Jesus. And who were welcomed in by that family of individuals and cared for in such a way that they played a role in whatever ministry happened at the hands of those who were traveling. There is not a single one of us in here who can't play a part in that. The question is, A, am I willing? And B, am I joyful about it? Am I excited about the possibility that God could use simply my willingness to be hospitable to take the gospel places it hasn't been? Now that's a vision for hospitality, isn't it? Incredible. And then in Philippians 2, there's this other emphasis. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many of you heard that one growing up as kids in your home? I did. I'm thankful I did, right? My kids hear it now. It's important because if we're striving to glorify God alone, we have every reason to be the most joy-filled people on the earth. Now, I've said this before, joy doesn't equate to happiness. It doesn't mean that we have to be happy all the time, but rather in reflection on what God in Christ has done for us, man, I'm a joyful, grateful person because I have everything I need in Christ. Is that true of us? Do we have everything we need in Christ? Biblical hospitality is a matter of the heart far more than it is a matter of the home. And I want some of you to hear that. Let everything we have be used for God's glory. And, and here's, here's what I think the struggle is in this. If I elevate how I am seen... How I am seen over how God is seen. I am glorifying self. If I elevate how I am seen over how God is seen, I'm glorifying self. The most practical way that we do this is to say, well, I just, I don't think I have the, the ability to be hospitable to people. No, every single one of you does. Every one of you does. And, and let me tell you, in all the years that we've been in people's homes, I don't remember any of them for how clean their house was. Seriously, I don't. You know what I remember? I remember the joy of people who welcomed us in. And what that meant to my family and I. In seasons where we weren't sure where we were going to be or what it was going to look like or where things were going. I don't remember. You, you will not, I promise you this, none of you will get to eternity and you go, man, I wish the living room was cleaner when that family came over. <laughs> it won't happen, okay? It won't, it won't. But let me tell you, you will find no greater joy than gathering with people in your home and encouraging them with the gospel. And I can testify to that as a, 
my wife and I are a family that wrestled with that early on to go, what does this look like? And just realized it doesn't matter as long as we do it. It doesn't have to be fancy. There are times we, we love to do premarital counseling in our home because people get to see reality. Seriously. And when people come over to our house, they get to see my wife and I parent our kids. They get to see sometimes that we come in after a really long and busy and full day and the house is a mess. But we have to adopt a mindset to go. It's, it's not about how they see us. It's how, about how they encounter God. And when you can adopt that mindset, oh, it's so freeing, family. And we can participate in ways that we don't even know how God is working in the lives of people who cross our paths. Absolutely incredible. The last exhortation that we see here. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Family, if you are in Christ, God has given you His Spirit, and there in so doing has given you gifting. And I'm going to tell you, you may not know exactly what that is, but you will never know if you don't start trying to serve people. And the more you serve, the more you're going to refine what that gifting is and how it looks in the local, in the local church. Um, but it has to start with you taking a step and going, I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to be on a journey to discover. See how God can use me because I want him to be glory, not, glorified, not me. To be a good steward of God's varied grace. Some people struggle with that idea of his varied grace. It doesn't mean that God's offer of salvation in Christ is different for different people. Instead, it looks like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, where the gifts that God gives are different. And praise God for that. Because, man, if this whole church was filled with people like me, we would not last. Seriously. I, there are those of you in here who are far more gifted in the areas of faith than I am. And I need that in my life. There are those of you in here that are far more gifted in the areas of generosity than I am. And the church needs that. There are those of you in here who are far gifted, far gift, more gifted in the areas of administration. And you enjoy that. And I go, why? And we need that. Okay? We need that. There are those of you in here who are significantly gifted in your care and compassion for people. And we need that. There are those of you in here who are really, really gifted in children's ministry. And I am not. And we need that. We could go on and on and on. And the varied grace that's being talked about here means that every one of us plays a role in the whole. And without one of you, the church is incomplete. Without the whole, we can accomplish, we can accomplish nothing. Because it's in Christ that we are redeemed. It's in Christ we are gifted. And the command of scripture is that whatever God has entrusted to you, use it to serve one another for the glory of God. And that's what verse 11 goes to. Whoever speaks, if you're someone who has a gift of speaking, do so as if you're speaking direct oracles from God. Why? So that God's glorified. If you're one who serves and you just love to serve, man, serve in a way 
that it's by the strength that God has supplied. Why? So that He gets the glory. Don't speak as one who tries to draw attention to yourself. Don't serve as one who's trying to earn accolades or compliments or any of those things. Do it in a way that God alone is glorified. And then give Him praise for how He's allowed you to be a part of what He's already doing. This is not to say that some supernatural ability is given with a gift to serve. Rather, we should see our gifts as opportunities to bring glory to God in us. Rather than self-achievement or splendor, glory belongs to God alone. Now, this brings me kind of to the ending reality of how do we apply this? And I made myself a sign, okay? Because I like visuals, and the question I need to ask is, who will our existence be about? Now, naturally speaking, this is how we start. It's all about who? Me! It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I think. It's about what I feel. And if you don't make me feel good, or this makes me uncomfortable, or this makes me unhappy, or any of these things, I don't want anything to do with it. Because my existence is about me. There is not one part of your life that you can't struggle, that you will not struggle to make it about you. Alright? You will constantly fight this battle. And it's exactly what Peter is warning them against. Because the end of all things is at hand. So what do we do? Well, more of this is not helping. More of this is not furthering the gospel. And this is not just applicable on an individual level, family. This is applicable on a church level. It's not about the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. It's, it's not about what you and I accomplish here and saying, look what we did. No, don't ever be a people who says that. What is God doing? How can we join what he's already done? How can we partner with him? And so what, is that, what does that practically look like? Well, it, it looks like me adjusting my perspective. And when I come to faith in Christ... My sign should change. Right? My sign changes. Because it's not, it's, it's not about me. It's, it's about Him. It's about what He's done. I, let me tell you what He's done. He's, he's given me life. And hope, I tried to find that in myself. When it was, when it was about me, I tried, to, I tried to uncover that in me. and It always failed. But when, when my sign changed, well, how did it change? I understood what Jesus did for me. And it wasn't about Him. He said, I came to do the will of Him who sent me. He humbled Himself. He says, no one takes my life from me. I willingly give it up. Why? So that you and I could have a hope that goes far beyond anything this world will offer. Family, you will never find satisfaction if your sign hasn't changed. You will always be looking for the next thing to make you happy. You will always be looking for the next big thing that encourages you. 
and it'll fail you. It'll drop you flat on your rear end and you're going to be left going, what now? God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promise of eternity with Him through Jesus is still there. The question is, where, where's my sign at? Where's it at? Because at the end of the day, glory belongs to God alone. May that be who we are. And in everything we do, He would be glorified. Amen? The worship team is going to come and we're going to sing a song that just says that. Father, may we be a people who strive to glorify You above anything else. Father, help us to see how we have failed to do this. Bring us freedom from our own self, Lord. We know you've made a way in Christ. I pray you would humble us, that we would make it about you, not about us. We would make it about what you've done, not about what we do. Lord, use us for your purposes in Jesus' name.